Well, if you've been here for uh, more than a couple weeks or so, you know that typically when we encounter a text, we, we tr- I try to kind of pull out and help us see the meaning in light of the original kind of cultural context. And today I'm going to do something a little bit different with this psalm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus more on the things that prevent us from seeing this otherwise pretty clear text more clearly. Uh, a couple weeks ago when, uh, when Michael was, was preaching, he reminded us that that this is a literary genre that is different from just like an epistle or a letter or like, you know, it's not an instruction manual, it's, it's actually poetry. And poetry is meant to more be absorbed than necessarily explained in every kind of intricate detail. It's more of a, a picture that we're supposed to experience or have wash over us than necessarily something where we kind of investigate every nook and cranny. But more than that, even more than that, it's not just poetry, it's also the Psalms are Israel's hymnal. Like, when is, in Old Testament Israel, when God's people got together, they would sing these Psalms together as a church, but as God's covenant people. And as such, some of these, you'll notice, are descriptive in that they are articulating something that, man, this is part of the universal human experience, right? They are descriptive of what it means to live in this world. And that means even across time or place or culture, we can really resonate with some of these psalms. Other times, like this one, it can feel maybe a little bit prescriptive. And what I mean by that is is not that it's saying, like, you should do this or you should do that, but understanding Psalm 144 as part of a hymnal, as in something that we sing together, or that's how we should understand and interpret it, that means that it might feel well, maybe just more certain than we feel, right? I, I, was, I was struck by how when we were, we were singing God uh, as this, our solid rock, right, that all other grounds are sinking sands. And yet at, this, at some times when we are singing that song, or maybe I'm just projecting, when I'm singing that song, sometimes it feels like God is the sinking sand, because you're asking, where are you, God? And so to sing that to a culture that is... Like I've talked about expressive individualism a lot up here, to a, to a culture that values being highly authentic and, and honest about how we feel and also consistent, like our lives being consistent with how we f- feel and not being hypocrites or ignoring that in any way, that can feel kind of prescriptive, can't it? But sometimes, and this is, no, this is actually how Israel would have understood the Psalms, sometimes we actually need that especially when we don't feel that. Does that make sense? Right, I mean, let's, let's kind of contextualize this. Let's, let's put this into something a little bit concrete. Let's say a friend of yours is um, stressed out, you know, for one of many reasons I'm sure we could list, right? They're stressed out, they're discouraged, they're anxious. The first thing you're going to do is obviously, like, empathize with them. Like, don't lead with solution, but guys, like, we know this, Right? Of course we're going to empathize with them. But do we do anything else? Like if you see your friend, if, they, if there is something that you could prescribe to them that maybe they're unable to see because of the anxiety or the stress that they're under, would you be a good friend by leaving that out? Maybe you would, like, maybe let me just ask, like in a less rhetorical question, you don't have to say it out loud, but maybe think to yourself, would, if your friend was feeling discouraged, maybe feeling distant from God, would you encourage them, hey, maybe come to church more than once a month? 
Maybe hearing God's love from somebody else so you don't have to muster up your own belief and faith in God's love for you. Maybe it would be easier to trust that it's true. Maybe if you are feeling lonely or isolated, encouraging your friend to come to community group and to be around other people who are also kind of feeling similarly but are leaning into relationship and friendship with one another as a means of, of wrestling with that. Would you, if they're anxious, would you maybe encourage them to delete social media from their phone? I know that's like, oh wait, I've never thought of that. I know, that's the problem. That's, that's the social media addiction speaking, right? Would you follow up with them if, if in a previous conversation they said, hey, you mentioned going to counseling. Do you know the number of a good therapist I could call? Absolutely, here it is. Would you follow up to make sure that they made that appointment? If you're a good friend who holds that person in high regard... Yes, you, you absolutely would. So one, Psalm 144, what it's doing, it's, it's articulating a confidence, a, maybe even a, it may even feel like a certainty of faith that feels prescriptive to us. It feels maybe, I don't know, out of reach. Like to have David's faith, to be able to say... God is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer. To be able to say that may feel very weird. If you believe being prescriptive, maybe if you believe it's wrong, or maybe even inappropriate or ju just inappropriate in some way, I'm, I'm willing to bet that what we can all agree on is that a good part of the reason why is that it because it provokes and brings out something that Psalm 144 describes extremely well. And that is verse 4. When David says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. When it says, Man is like a breath, it's actually using the same word that Ecclesiastes used uses to, to, to complain and to say, oh, vanity of vanities. All of life is vanity. That word for vanity means to be empty. It means to be passing like a vapor. It's there and then gone. In other words, we're going to die anyway. This life is so short in the grand scheme of things. We are not going to change the world, guys. Seriously. No, no, no one of us is going to change the world. I remember um, shortly after the pandemic lockdowns happened, uh, and we were all miserable. I know we don't, I don't want to think about it any more than you do, okay? But I had the opportunity to interview for a podcast a therapist named, by the name of Chris Bruno. He's actually in uh, Fort Collins. And I asked him, as a former chaplain in the Army National Guard, I was starting to notice that the way that many of us were reacting and the way I was feeling in the midst of this started to look very symptomatic of soldiers, uh, similar, have similar symptoms as soldiers who were returning home from deployment with PTSD. The anxiety, the sleeplessness, the, the, the hypervigilance and everything involved in that. And I asked him, you know, I asked Chris Bruno, like, am I crazy to be thinking that like, there's a similar dynamic happening here that's not exactly copy-paste the same thing, but is, is comparable. And he said, first of all, absolutely. And I think about this all the time. He also said that we are, as a culture, are so used to functioning at a superhuman capacity 
because we're, it's, it's aided by technology, like technology is an extension of our finiteness, that in the lockdown, by being disembodied and only being able to rely on technology, we are confused because superhumans are now feeling subhuman. And he said the goal is to actually leverage this opportunity to understand and appreciate what it, what it means to be fully human, but finitely so. And so, I know we don't like to think about that time period, like I sure, sure as hell don't. We are haunted now by an experience of verse 4 that until the, until the pandemic, we only occasionally experienced during personal crises as they came up. And so our hesitancy, our discomfort with prescription or saying something that feels inauthentic like Psalm 144 is articulating or that that, that experience of reading it might be, it's, it's essentially because we don't know what to do with verse 4. And it's because we, we think, I'm convinced this is the case, that, 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 that we think that when we talk about faith, we talk about trust, even if we're using God's name as the object of our faith, Often, it is a faith in ourselves and our, in our, our extracting of God's blessing instead of our receiving of His blessing, and that will crush us. That will crush us. So let's talk about this. Like, I, I want to I lean into that discomfort a little bit and talk about, we're going to divide this up into two chunks because it's, it's really interesting. Psalm 144 is arranged in a way that uh, verses 1 and 2 and then 3 and 4 introduce the rest of the psalm. So verses 1 and 2 introduce thematically what, what he articulates in verses 5 through 11. So let me reread those together so that we see how those are connected. Psalm 144 verse 1 says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. So that's almost like the because this is true, therefore, verse 5, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. That's the mountains, right? <laughs> and send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from many, the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Verses 9 through 11 are kind of almost a, like a refrain, like it's, it's, it's pulling in earlier lines from verse 7 to, to make this point that we are praising God for his faithfulness in the past, but also his certain deliverance now. It's kind of an obvious point, but it's easy to miss, surprisingly, that, 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 that David, if he's asking for rescue and deliverance, that means he's losing, right? What's being pictured here is he's on the losing end of a battle. Like the, the Israel's armies are being routed. They're being trounced. In fact, the, the language of rescue and deliver, that is that's used twice in this psalm in order to give this kind of an emphatic focus on the dire need for rescue and deliverance. And if we only had verses like 7 through 11, maybe, 
Like if, if we didn't have verses five and six, we might, we might read this as like desperation or even maybe a bribe. Like, hey God, if you do this for me, I'm gonna praise you and write a song for you, right? But verses five through six, like we don't sing song, songs like this at church. This isn't Danny's fault. I'm just saying like, there's not a whole lot to choose from out there. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so they smoke. First of all, it's a little triggering if you live in Colorado. But what this is, what, what's being articulated here is a, is a confidence that God is sovereign over creation itself. That this is something David knows for certain that God can do. In fact, he's so expectant that God will do this that he says, you know what, my, my job is God, my job is verse 11, sorry, verse 9. I'm going to sing to you, O God. The only thing that King David does in the entire psalm is sing. God does the rescuing. God does the delivering. God achieves the victory. Now, as I say this, I know that for those of us especially who um, are very aware of everything that is wrong in the world and also maybe as I'm talking about God's protection, you are thinking to yourself of, of how God, it does not seem that God has protected you very well, at least not very consistently. You might be objecting, you might be saying like, okay, if, we, if this is what we are called to expect of God, then why in the world does God not seem to protect his people? Why does he not protect us more? What about when, what, what, do, you, what do we do? How do we understand this when God's rescue doesn't come? It's a very good question. And as Michael beautifully said, and introducing the Q&A this morning. This is the story, the true story of the world. We can come to God's word with these questions. So I've got three answers for you. And they're overlapping and complementary to each other. The first is this. If you have a God that's big enough to be a refuge and a fortress from conquering armies then you also have a God who's big enough to allow something painful to happen for reasons we can't know or see. It's, it, you just can't, you, you don't, you can't just have one or the other. It has to be both. And again, I have been there. Like I, when I was writing up my sermon on this part, I kept thinking so much about um, our time at, a, at my first church where I was a pastor, I was an assistant pastor. I've shared this with you guys before, I know. Um, and during a, the two and a half years I was there, the last two years of it was excruciatingly painful. And we endured, Hannah and I both endured significant spiritual abuse and had to learn how to suffer well. And I didn't like that. Man, duh, right? And I asked this same question. I was like, God, like, this was supposed to be amazing. Like, I knew that that ministry is hard and painful, but I didn't think it was going to be because of the church. Oh, my naivety. But I was telling somebody the other day, it's been probably a few to several years now that I feel like I have accepted that that has happened, but I'm recently, in the last couple of years alone, actually grateful that that happened. Because I sure, I sure as hell would not have survived the pandemic if I had not learned to suffer well in a, an actually more controlled environment. I wouldn't, the, the table would not be a refuge 
For those of you who have experienced abuse or just feeling burned by church in general and disappointed and, and discouraged by other Christians, like this would not be a place where you could actually process that if God had not broken my heart through the direct experience of the same. And so I am actually grateful. And even though I am grateful for that, sometimes we also never actually see it, the reason why. And there may be other reasons why that I'm not aware of. I just, God has given a gift that I'm able to see it in the midst of this example. But that doesn't mean that it will always happen. But it does not also mean that God is not a refuge or a fortress concurrently. Okay, so that's one answer to that very valid, reasonable question and objection. The second is, is this. To understand what's happening in the psalm, we have to remember that God is a, or sorry, that David is a covenant representative for Israel. What I mean by that is that as king, David, like singularly and individually, he is a stand-in for all of God's people. And so what, what God does with David and to David or for David is what God does to and for all of Israel. And so it's a way of personifying a people who otherwise is hard to define because it's, 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 it's more ambiguous because there are so many. But it becomes very personable and individually relatable because God works through covenant representatives. That's important because that means that the overwhelming majority of promises of protection in Scripture are not promises of protection in our individual circumstances, but our ultimate protection and victory as a whole for God's people. In other words, our rescue, our deliverance is ultimately and not circumstantially guaranteed. By the way, I'm not making this up. I'm actually paraphrasing Jesus himself, actually. When he says in Matthew 10, I'm going to read a couple of verses here. He says, behold, he's speaking to his disciples, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is not your best life now. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves, not fearful or combative, right? Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. That's literal, not verbal over social media, okay? And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Go on to verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child... And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That last part, that's the ultimate guarantee that Jesus saves us and rescues and delivers us, not necessarily circumstantially, in this life now, but for all eternity in the life to come. The Roman Empire, don't forget, fed Christians to lions. But the church ended up converting that same empire, both through the power of the gospel of, of a God who died for his people, as well as through a people living that out and being unfazed by the threat of death. That, 
that isn't worldly power. That is power over the world. So how does that work out? Like, <laughs> um, I mentioned my friend who's a church planner in Florida. His name is John Homus. He's planting a multi-ethnic church in what's basically the urban suburbia uh, in North Miami. And John has had some pretty incredible international exposure to the church, both um, in refugee ministries here in the U.S., as well as traveling and especially spending time in East Africa. And he, he said recently to me that the biggest difference that he has noticed between U.S. and East African Christians is that we pray for deliverance from suffering, and they pray for the faith to suffer well, to endure suffering. That difference is not the difference in how we understand Scripture. It is the difference in which we are shaped unknowingly or unknowingly by our culture. And if the goal is physical safety or comfort, then Christianity ain't it. Victory is another thing entirely. The last third of three answers to that objection is that Jesus thank God, <laughs> is the true and better David. He is the new covenant representative, and so what has happened to him will happen to all of his people. And that means that Jesus' death and resurrection is both our pattern for this life and our promise and guarantee in the next. In other words, a life of pick up your cross and follow me makes it both possible and satisfying to live into... because. Sorry, let me rephrase that. A life of pick up your cross and follow me is both possible and satisfying because Christ's promise of nothing can separate us from the love of God. That even death itself cannot do that. Okay, if that is how we understand victory and what it means to have faith in, our, in God's victorious rescue, then let's talk about what faith and flourishing legacy looks like. Let me reread verses 3 through 4 and then pair that with 12 through 14. David says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? That's a way of, by the way, son of man, when he's saying that, it's like saying like humanity. What, is, what are human beings that you think of them? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Verse 12, may our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters, like corner pillars cut from the structure of a palace, may our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. I'm going to get to 12 and 14 in a second, but, but in verse 3, when he says, what is man that you regard him? We, probably, we don't really use the word regard very often, except when we're writing an email and it's R-E colon, like regarding. Like, it's not, a, this isn't saying, like, God, what is man that you are about him, right? It's way more than that. Regard means expert understanding and compassionate attentiveness. Attentiveness. Do you realize that you have God's attention? 
Do you realize that you don't have to get his attention because he hasn't ever taken it off of you? That means you don't have to pray a right way. It means you don't have to sing the right way. You don't earn God's love or attention. It hasn't left you since you've been born. And David, what he's saying, he, what he's doing, he's, he's marveling. He's in awe because he's, he's realizing that there is this chasm between God's perfect and infinite attentiveness and our boneheaded finiteness. Man, whose life is a momentary breath or vapor, David is in awe that, like, how can God have both the the eternal perspective and infinite attentiveness for such creatures? Why should God care? We don't last, and we are not faithful. How is God so faithful? I don't know, honestly, except that he is, and he's God. If there was a reason apart from it's who he is, he wouldn't be God because he would be subject to some cause or condition outside of himself and that's what makes him a God of love and grace. And that is why in the same breath that Jesus was telling his disciples, expect suffering, expect pain, expect persecution, in the very same breath, immediately after saying that, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's how, like, he's not just attentive, he's detailed. He cares about things that you don't think about. Parts of you, you're not even aware of on a regular basis, but God is. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You are more highly and infinitely regarded by God, even than the sparrows. We are God's greatest concern in all creation. That regard... And in the experience of that, that David is articulating, right? This is the very descriptive part of the psalm, right? What is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? We're not worth thinking about, God. What is going on? It is an experience of that regard that makes the psalm pivot from worrying about and, and needing rescue and deliverance from an imminent threat into focusing on the future flourishing of God's people. That God's people are the legacy of God's people. I know that's kind of redundant and and circular reasoning, but you'll note that in verses 12 through 14, it pivots, and and instead of being David speaking as Israel's covenant representative, it turns into a corporate prayer. That's the language of, may our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown. May our granaries be full. May our cattle be heavy with young. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. That's a a kind of a... um, an allusion to crime and order and or disorder. May there be no disorder because we are living in shalom with one another. That concern, that regard for that very good thing, God's people are freed to be praying for and to be thinking about because we have a certain expectation in God achieving victory. Because after the battle is over and the victory is won, David doesn't start you know, like he, he doesn't say, 
Uh, God, uh, let's push the advantage here after conquering, uh, beating back these, this conquering army. Let's take the fight to the enemy. God, David doesn't say, God, may we ex- exact vengeance and, and, and equip our arms for vengeance. He doesn't double down in self-protection. He doesn't fear a future attack. David fades into the background to help Israel refocus on the reliance on the Father's regard for them and refocus it from victory to legacy. I just wonder if we are so concerned and worried about our own good that we don't even take our eyes off of ourselves long enough to realize the victory is won. Everything in the world around us incentivizes us toward self-focus, toward at least a chronic low-grade narcissism. We are a narcissistic culture. I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. That means we need more than ever to know that our self-concern is made unnecessary by God's high regard of us. It changes how we view everything. In fact, this will be the last thing we say before going into the Q&A. But to have faith in God's blessing is the same thing as to say that we have faith in God's regard. Let me read verse 15. It says, Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. If I'm doing circular reasons, so is David. Blame him. Okay? Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. When God's regard is not our foundation or fuel for rescue, two things happen. Number one, we will start to believe that our victory and our legacy are on our shoulders. That is crushing. It will lead to verse four, absolutely. It will lead to us saying, man, it's like a breath. His days are like a passing, passing shadow. What in the world? This is, how do we do this? But it will not lead you to verse three. It will not lead you to, what is man that you regard him? or the Son of Man that you think of Him. Never mind the confidence and the certainty of God's victory and deliverance and rescue or a focus on the things that are good and beautiful in the world. Secondly, we'll be so worried about our ongoing survival just staying above water that we never get to consider, we never get to or move to considering legacy. We'll never think about our neighbor's and then you think about our church. Let me put it this way. I, 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 I know in this sermon I'm, I'm talking a lot more, than, even more than usual, about the kind of environment or the atmosphere that we're in. But being fish who, who are aware that we're wet is really helpful for understanding and, and allowing this to take deeper root and anchor in our hearts. Um, there's a fantastic book if you're a nerd, if you're like a statistic, eh. I am not a statistician, I don't like statistics, but I like people to tell me what they mean, okay? So, but if you are someone who likes statistics, you will enjoy this book. It's called uh, From, From Politics to the Pews, and it's written by a sociologist and political scientist named Michelle Margolis, and she brings in this data that is just incredible that shows somewhere around the year 2012, give or take a year, um, the United States went from uh, our religious 
beliefs informing our political convictions and therefore our political convictions being more likely to change as a result of our religious beliefs to reversing that. To our religious beliefs are now more likely to be changed by our political convictions. There are many implications of a country where that is now the majority dynamic, okay? There are many, many implications, but at least one of those is that whether we are talking about politics specifically or the culture wars generally, we are going to feel not just circumstantially, but ultimately embattled all the time. It's in the air and the water that we are navigating on a daily basis. And I, it is distracting us from seeing more clearly God's regard for us, his attentive care, his love, and that ultimate reality is not defined by political or other circumstances. It is defined by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are not, that's not a fair fight. So if, there's a, if there is a... a um, there aren't very many practical applications for this sermon, I understand. But if there is one, here's what I'd love you to do. Like, seriously, consider this. Take this psalm and copy-paste it into an, a calendar event about, for about two to three months before the 2024 presidential election, and I want you to make that a recurring event every week. Read Psalm 144 and pray. Pray not for your candidate or party or policies to be enacted or to be voted for, those are bad hopes. They're false hopes, okay? I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't take that stuff seriously. I'm saying don't take it ultimately. Instead, pray for the church to have the faith to suffer well, not to be protected from suffering, but to lean into it because we know Unlike anyone else in the world, unlike any other people on the planet in history, across time and space or culture, it doesn't matter. We know that we look ahead to the end of the world's story, and the end of the story is victory over death and all its forms, and it's already been won. And also pray that the, fo- that, that the church would focus on stewarding God's blessing well. See, I'm going to riff on this a little bit, and then I promise we'll get to the Q&A. But this is so important because when, when Israel is saying, may our, sons and, may our sons and their youth be like plants full grow, that, that whole section, when, when the psalm is, is, is articulating and asking God to bless his people, it's not, it's not ultimately selfish. Because David and anyone reading this psalm in in the original audience would have understood and heard the word blessing through the lens of Genesis 12. When When God inaugurated his people in Abraham, he told Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will make your name great and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. What what the psalmist, what David is asking for, and all of Israel is joining him in the first person plural in praying, is that God would equip them to be a blessing to the nations and neighbor. Because if we don't have anything to offer, 
Yes, materially, that's part of it. But if we don't have anything to offer, including and especially and ultimately God himself, what are we doing here? Who is this God? Is he worth knowing or loving or praising? No. But if you know him and you love him and you praise him, then you cannot help but share him. In sum, all I'm saying is what Paul has already said in Romans 8, verse 32. He said, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Whether in war and peace, different, in difficulty or in ease, in plenty or in want, in sickness or in health, Psalm 144 does prescribe faith. When we read it together as a church, when we sing songs as a church, it is a prescription. Okay. I heard something weird. Anyway. Okay. Man, that was amazing. That came from a child. That's awesome. Sorry. Psalm 144 prescribes faith and focus. Faith that our victory and our legacy are the inevitable consequence of God's unfathomable regard for His people. His attentive compassion. It will be delivered. We will be rescued. We will be flourished by God. Even though we are finite and broken, we are yet beloved in Him. All right. Before I get distracted again, let me see what questions we have. Okay. Here's a question. But the one who endures to the end will be saved certainly makes it seem like our salvation is obtained via our ability to proclaim the gospel and endure abuse. But this seems to be in stark contrast to the idea that salvation cannot be earned. What up with that? Appreciate the uh, uh, directness there. Um, Yeah, so when I read that, I I anticipated this question because... um, When Jesus is saying that, he's saying that from an eternal perspective. In other words, another way of saying, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, another way of saying that is, um, because we are saved, we will endure in the end. We don't have to worry about that because God will keep us. That is what, what Scripture means when it's the author and perfecter, when God is the author and perfecter of our faith. And Right, Romans 8, which I quoted from just a few verses later, it says, therefore nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not tribulation, not principalities of the air, not, not spiritual forces, not political forces, not circumstances. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to feel like you're on sinking sand because that is the normative experience in this life. That is not a threat to your salvation. That is a proof that salvation does not depend on your strength at all. It depends on God's strength, the object of our faith, and his regard for us, and he will keep us. Very good question. The language is strange, but that's essentially what's going on there. And that also looks like the last question we've got for this morning, so let me pray. Jesus, If I am honest, I, it is crystal clear that all of the anxieties, all of the, the worries that I have, while valid and because of very real and legitimate 
circumstances and things going on in the world or going on in my life are happening to me and I feel out of control and all of that is true. And yet, the anxiety that I feel in that, the worry that it stokes and catalyzes in my heart, Lord, that is because I need to see more fully and clearly your incredible and unfathomable regard for me. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to to not just experience the chasm between your eternal perspective and your infinite regard, but to, to see that those are not irreconcilable, but that is actually the very locus of our redemption. That you bridged that gap on the cross and demonstrated and proved for all time, for eternity, that once and for all, we are loved, we are cherished, and we are in you. Thank you, Jesus, that we can pray that <laughs> with the beautiful benefit of hindsight and the certainty because it has happened, and it is true whether we struggle to believe it or we feel certainty. It's true. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen.